Welcome to the Creation Theatre Podcast. This week we have been on our travels. As we're performing um, in Blackwell's bookshop at the moment, we were invited to the Litfest Marquee, um, which is a, a beautiful construction <laughs> full of books and coffee and all the other things you would want in life um, just by the Bodleian. Uh, and uh, it's kind of the hub for the, the Litfest. Um, and we were invited to do uh, a panel on, we called it Freud, Feminism and Fangs. So the kind of background, a uh, bit of the kind of psychology and the thinking behind our uh, current running version of Dracula. Um, so you'll hear from me uh, and Ginny from Creation and Helen and Kate, um, the writer and director of the show. Um, and we'll get cracking with that. Um, we had previously called this talk Freud, Feminism and Fangs. So generally uh, <laughs> around those three Fs. Um, and then if any of you guys have got any questions, we'd love to take some questions from the floor. Um, just pop your hand up at any point. So a good question to get started on is why do you think vampire fiction endures? Why are we still scared of vampires and why are we still scared of vampires? Yeah, you go, you go, you go first. I, I am still scared of vampires. <laughs> But I'm also a bit scared of the dark, so I think it might just be a bit of a wimp. But I, I think that we are always a bit fascinated by the bad in us and the bad self, and I think that's what we're really drawn to, the things that we can't necessarily express and, and be socially acceptable, <laughs> and what, what, un, what underlines us and what, what our true identity is. I think that's what we're really drawn to them, and that's what we're experimenting with in the show, really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I second that. I think it's it's all about the kind of the sexuality and the allure of the vampires. I think uh, and the mix of sex and death. They're all about sex and death, and that, those are two things that we're we're all absolutely fascinated by, and they they're kind of at the core of what it means to be human. But we repress a lot of that. Um, uh, yeah. I'm not. So, I'm not scared by vampires. Um, <laughs> but but um, my dad came to see the show and was absolutely terrified. Yeah, made the show's quite yeah. scary. <laughs> so, is it a fear of ourselves then, rather than a fear of of an of a thing, of an external thing? It's not. It's not the vampire with yeah. the teeth at the window. It's the fear of what it's bringing out inside ourselves. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, I mean because there's a degree to which that is quite farcical isn't it as an idea but it is what what it's symbolic of I think that's why it's enduring really mm, and that's certainly what we looked at within, yeah. within the adaptation and within this production uh, uh, we ran with the idea that Jonathan and Mina as a central couple are repressing their, their sexuality so they're in this this new marriage and they can't really express their sexual desire for each other um, and and the, the vampirism Dracula represents that kind of uh, unfiltered lust yeah and I think it's also particularly in Dracula I don't know if it's true for all vampires vampires but in Dracula you have to invite the vampire in mm-hmm. so it's I think it's the ways in which we might choose our own self-destruction is quite interesting as well do you think i sort of have the feeling that we've we've maybe civilized the vampire so if you think about the kind of early sort of black and white films of vampires and it's it's horror basically it's kind of rapping at the window but then you get all the way up to kind of twilight and sparkly vampires who the main thing about them is they've just been around for ages so they know loads and they're really civilized what everyone in in blackwells will know there's a adapt a tv adaptation being made at the moment of a story which is set in Oxford and it's a witch and a vampire falling in love and oh, right. and the, the, the vampires are they're sort of dangerous but they're also kind of civilised they sort of become like professorial a bit like just because 
I feel like we've we've kind of blunted the teeth. Well, Dracula's a bit, is a bit like that, isn't he? He knows yeah. everything, and he's you know wants to speak in and ad- adopt different civilizations and things like that. I suppose there's well, there is a knowledge in that kind of amorality that the Dracula represents or that vampires represent, and that's a knowledge. And there's they kind of represent a shadow self, and there's a knowledge in that shadow self, and there's something about owning all. And I suppose the making vampires more acceptable is, a, is about that route to assimilating the vampire within us, assimilating the shadow self within us and, the, and therefore being a more complete person and, and that is knowledge Yeah, and that you kind of lose the sort of the freak show horror part because that's actually the bit that's not particularly convincing or kind of compelling because it's sort of other, whereas if you can civilise the vampire a bit then it's basically us I don't think the vamp- I mean I, I think the modern vampires that you're talking about they are very handsome it's true um, but I don't think they have to be if you think about Nosferatu for instance they, they don't have to be very handsome and I think the allure is in the kind of the predatory power, the sexual power, that the mortality, immortality. That's where the power lies, rather than in a kind of whatever the contemporary aesthetic of handsome or, or attractive um, for a female vampire as well. Is. And I, I think um, they're attractive as well in a sense because they prey on people who want what they have, don't they? You always want what you haven't got. So there is kind of. The Hollywood thing has run with that, hasn't it? But actually, they are attractive in another sense, I think, but not necessarily aesthetically. I don't profess to understand it fully. I mean, I was terrified when I first read Dracula. Like, <laughs> you probably wouldn't be so scared now. No. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, well, one of the things we've done in this production, which was actually the idea of Lucy Askew, who's the chief exec uh, of Creation Theatre, was that you never see Dracula. Um, which I think is quite exciting and it was certainly really fun to, to work with directorially and there is something about if you, never, if you never see the vampire then you can project all your fears and desires onto that idea of the vampire and it's kind of easier to do if you don't see a person representing Dracula because that person may not live up to your imagination and of course the joy of theatre and as, as in the joy of good literature is that you, you engage your imagination it's not just all handed to yeah. you um, There's a lot in Dracula about repression of desire and about miscommunication um, and with the adaptation that we've put on in Black Closet at the moment we focus a lot on the relationship between Jonathan and Mina and how they're struggling to communicate with each other since he came back from Transylvania and how that changes as they start to let kind of Dracula have more control over their lives and how, and how he comes in. What do you think Freud would say about all of that? <laughs> what he'd say about their relationship yeah about their relationship and about how their relationship is really struggling when they're trying to repress their desires but then as soon as they let themselves be taken over by it that's when although there's a sort of negative impact of that of of vampirism infecting them and and then will go on to affect everyone around them it actually gives them a lot of freedom oh yeah I think it's wholly positive when they (laughs) (laughs) when they embrace their inner vampire I think it's a marvellous thing well Freud was actually quite negative about that though in in a sense wasn't he about the pleasure principle and how if we run with it we're going to completely self-destruct and I suppose what we were playing with is is the idea that Mina holds on to her reality in a really practical way to 
with, with real intensity, actually. So she can never really access this idea of pleasure and living for you know physical and psychological stimulation. Um, so it's, it's how you cope with not having a drive for pleasure, I think. But if you let it run free, you're stuffed, aren't you? <laughs> but that's interesting, because then in, in contrast to Lucy, who is... Uh, who's dead by the time we're telling this story who has gone with it you know Mm. she's enjoyed her life she's had a lot of sex she's had a really good time and she's now dead and she's been caught by the vampire first of all yeah she gets punished I think it's kind of and that kind of I suppose brings us to gender stuff in in that she's uh, she uh, is more sexually confident is more flirtatious and of course she's the one that that becomes the vampire and is so intimidating as the vampire and becomes an it rather than a woman. She starts to be referred to as an yeah. it. She, yeah. She's ungendered when she becomes sexually confident. And then the method of killing the vampire is, you know, this stabbing with, with, the, with the stake, which obviously is very phallic. Um, and it, so she's punished, you know, she's punished for being a sexually confident woman. So within the, the book, there is this kind of your usual virgin whore kind of stuff because Mina is seen as as the more virginal one and, the, and the, she's, you know, represses yeah, those kind of Yeah, she's repeatedly told that she's pure yeah. by all the different yeah. men in the book and pure and perfect and passive, isn't she? Yes. And we wanted to unpick some of that a little bit mm-hmm. by uh, creating a character that, that did have sexual desires. Mm-hmm. Um and we, we looked also at the, the kind of the gender between those two characters because, um, I mean, a lot of, going back to Freud, a lot of the Freudian analysis of Dracula has focused on uh, uh, the, the kind of wanting to kill Dracula as the bad father figure and all that kind of stuff and, and has focused on the male characters. But one of the things about Jonathan is that he actually becomes quite passive in a lot of ways. So he kind of goes against some of those Freudian interpretations. And... And in that passivity and in that being ill, he is no longer kind of able to fulfil the traditional masculine protector role. And that's so that's a kind of gender challenge within their relationship. So we were quite interested in exploring that. What they, they both as characters have expectations of very traditional gender roles and what happens then when the when the circumstances don't allow the characters to fulfil those roles, how do they manage that and how do they move beyond that? And you guys are gonna lean in um, We've, you've gone for 1950s, like if anybody hasn't seen the show or the material, so kind of pulled it out of the kind of Victorian, but not all the way up to modern day because it's easier to, or it's it kind of, it's sort of easier to make the the sort of um, cognitive leap to well, this is plausible if it's if it's 1950 something, if it's kind of mid-century, then they they are trying to live in these roles, which now we might have more kind of trouble sort of the audience fighting against that, but you just go oh, I see. That's what's expected of them. Yeah. And uh, the 50s was really interesting. It was your choice, wasn't it? And it, it came partly from the space that we were in and not wanting to work against the sort of aesthetics of the space. But it was also really interesting from a gender perspective because post-war, obviously, women had been out um, in the workplace during the war and then found themselves being pulled back into the home. And sort of the, those gender roles became more rigid again. And I think we were really interested in exploring what happens when they've had a sense of liberty that, that has then been taken away. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah we will. <laughs> the, the, uh, the thing with the stake in the heart is, is sort of anti-phallic in a way, isn't it? It's, it's saying all that what, uh, testosterone energy that the vampires seem to have needs to be you know, stifled right here now. 
I, well, I suppose I was talking about staking Lucy, the vampire Lucy. Oh, so it's a man oh, holding oh, a pointed, yeah. long, long object and object. jabbing it repeatedly into a woman. Um, <laughs> I, just think, I just think of vampires as men, really. Oh, no, well, there's fem- yeah, female vampires too. Yeah. And actually, interestingly, in, in the book, Dracula, there are more female vampires than there are men. Yeah. The only male vampire that we're really aware of is Dracula. Absolutely. But in his castle, there are these three female Dracula, uh, three female vampires. There's also Lucy, who's been infected. So it, it's interesting. Also, then, how how we see the gender roles change once people become vampires, mm. you know, and, and the three female vampires, there's a lot of sort of sexuality to them, and they talk about... The bites are talked about as kisses, aren't they? They're kisses yeah. for us all when they when they're going to bite Jonathan. Um, yeah, I was certainly interested in the idea that Mina embracing that kind of vampire side of her and that ability to lust and to face mortality uh, was something that would empower her and make her stronger as as a woman. That kind of wholeness, and it does really because it's not until until they're both bitten and they're both infected that they can really have sex or something consummate their <laughs> yeah. relationship because yeah. the whole way through our adaptation through the two hour show there's this this real sort of struggle to communicate between the two of them until they decide until they realise what's going on they realise that Jonathan's been infected they realise what happened to Lucy and then they decide well we've got we've got two choices here we can stop this infection or at least our, our part in it or we can give in to it and they decide to give in and, and that's the moment at which they finally have this kind of release and they can start to communicate again mm-hmm. Um, which leads us into another question I'd written about um, about the way that Dracula is communicating with everybody because uh, he's able to even from you know a a faraway land he's able to communicate with the character of Renfield who at at the time is in an asylum and is talking about someone who's appearing at his window and he's bringing him gifts Um, and it's, it's like he's kind of playing on everyone's basest fears, you know, their fears and their desires. But he's not actually there to talk to them, but he's able to kind of infect their minds, really, isn't he? And that's almost a stronger um, a stronger infection than the actual once you're bitten and the vampirism's in your blood. It's once you're once Dracula's able to kind of communicate with you, that's when the trouble starts, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I see uh, Dracula very much as a, a kind of a symbol of unconscious urges and desires within all the characters um, you know Mina is hypnotised to try and you know Van Helsing hypnotises Mina to try and find out where Dracula is and obviously hypnosis was a technique that Freud used to get to the unconscious but I and I you could theorise that Stoker created that the kind of whole image of Dracula based on unconscious desires um, so for me, that's why he's so in their heads and gets inside their heads, because he is. He is the unconscious kind of rising to the surface. But obviously the play and the novel works on a whole, whole other level where he is just this supernatural being. <laughs> but he's quite greedy as well in the book, isn't he? Because he, I can't remember the exact quote now, but he says something along the lines of he wants to take his... Te- the women are his territory and he wants to get inside them to to claim them. He says something like, I'm taking your women one by one or something like that, doesn't he? Um, so he, I think there's an awareness in, in, in the book that he is able to occupy, and I think that's quite interesting, psychologically occupy, as, as not just physically. Yeah. yeah. 
but it could be about bad sex, really. <laughs> well, mad no. sex or bad sex. <laughs> Both. Oh, absolutely. I think, and I think a lot of in, uh, interpretations would look at it that way, and I think Stoker probably intended it that way. Um, <clears throat> I guess we just haven't looked at it that way. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit about our production and about the process of adaptation and. Kate, I wanted to ask how you go from a book, which is a series of, of journal entries and newspaper clippings and reportage, and how you turn that into a play for essentially just two actors. There are just two actors in our show, but playing several different characters, so there's a bit of multi-rolling. Um, what, what's that process that you go through? I think um, one of the key things to starting a task like that is working out uh, what's actually... The, the sort of core action or the core emotional resonance within each journal entry and working out what interactions are being spoken of within each journal entry and then trying to find and imagine what that action might have been and how it might take the space of a scene. Um, that, that's really what it is. You're, you're looking for the core message of each journal entry, really, because you obviously with a you don't want just people to be reading out their diaries. I mean, that would be really tedious. So it is just about finding what is the interaction between the characters, what's being reported to us, and is it plot related or is it a particularly interesting piece of psychology that we want to put into the text, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we talked a, a lot about you know what's the drive through your your yeah, adaptation yeah. as well. What's uh, what story are we telling? You know what's and what what's your drive through it? And one of the lovely things when I started rehearsing the script was that we'd had endless conversations about it, and I'd read it lots of times. Then you get into the rehearsal room, and I was like, oh my goodness, Kate put this in, and she put this in. Like I, there were still things that I'd missed, even though I'd read it a million times, and we'd had all those conversations. There was just these some incredible through lines and details of character and plot that you'd put in. Yeah, I think you, because it's such a, a big text and because there's such a lot of travelling in it and a lot of plot-heavy related action, you have to decide what your sort of focus is and what your spotlight is because you can't really achieve that entire narrative in a, in a two-hour play. So you have to sort of think about that concept and then when you're going through the individual bits, how do these pieces of action relate to your concept and are they something you're going to keep are they going to be enriching are they going to be interesting or do you lose them and you know yeah. what you lose is quite a big job in a text like this really yeah really important part of it and, and yeah. then when it comes to staging it it's kind of similar thoughts about what are people's expectations when they mm -hmm. hear it's Dracula there's a set of expectations and which of those expectations do I want to fulfil because they're exciting and that's part of the joy of vampires as we were talking about earlier and which of those expectations do I want to question and reframe and subvert um, yeah and it's amazing, actually, how um, not that many people actually know the novel that well, mm -hmm. but everybody sort of knows some form of the story in some way. So when you're thinking about expectations, you never quite know which expectations you're, you're thinking. Is it a film? Is it a, just, you know, a, an impression? Is it the actual book itself? So it, it, is, it is quite interesting, that aspect of it, really, how, how a narrative can just seep into culture and we all have a version of it in our brain. Yeah, and I think that's also the fascinating thing about staging classics is that what they mean changes over time, or the parts of them that resonate changes all the time, and it changes depending on the, the you know the current political social contexts. We often find that with creation that 
in terms of audience response, people are a bit more malleable with something like Dracula or Henry V, which they haven't necessarily read over and over or seen several times. You know, yeah. you, you do a Macbeth and you change the witches and you get emails from people saying, I wanted them to have a cauldron. You did it. <laughs> rubbish. But, like, you get a bit more freedom. With something we, uh, the, the, one of the sort of first shows we did in, in Blackwells was Jekyll and Hyde, and that's exactly the same as Dracula. You think, oh, yeah, I could sum up Jekyll and Hyde. You know what the phrase is, but you don't know what the plot is at all, unless you've like happened to have read it recently. Then the kind of the cultural sort of the you know the comedy spoofs and the kids versions and everything that you've kind of seen, you know, the like Sesame Street count, you know, like that's probably more front of mind for people, even if you have read the book kind of 20, 30 years ago. So you get more freedom as a data producer if you go, although you've gone classic text because you're kind of hooking onto something that people recognise you can sort of be a bit more free with it if it's something where you think, actually, most people haven't sat down with the York notes of this and gone through it and really kind of attached their own meaning to everything. And then you can just sort of have a bit more fun with it. Which is good. And I think it's important because... If, if you're putting a play on, if you're adapting anything, you have to ask, well, why? <laughs> what, mm. what can we offer? What's there to say now? What's important now? What's exciting now? What engages people now? Why? Why do this now? And you, what can we say? Yeah, and you have to expect it to be different, too, because it's yeah. a completely different form, so it can never really be the same. True. Yeah. And it would be completely different with a different director, <laughs> wouldn't it? I mean, it, you know, there's so many variables. And well, so much of this version as well is the venue is the fact that we yeah. have been let loose in this amazing, like, bookshop feels feels like too small a word for the knowing to be It's like a child's dream. It is, yeah. it is. And so many, either people have been in it before and they can't understand how it would be a theatre and they come to see or you've never been into knowing to be and you walk down into this, like, where, where's this been in my life? It's so atmospheric. It is the, the perfect setting for the piece and, and obviously we worked a lot on really making it fit in that space and responding to that space which has been utterly joyful <laughs> and uh, Kate located most of the action in a, in a library which uh, allows us to really interact with the books and really interact with the environment and it's so exciting and I think preferable to being in a theatre space <laughs> in a lot of ways um, because it, well, it really adds to the it adds to the story, it adds to you the reality of it and the suspension of disbelief, the magic of it because you're creating something in that space but it's a really magical space, it's an exciting I, th- I think uh, as a practitioner as well, it's, it makes you better because it challenges you more uh, and you know, having to use new spaces is, is difficult and, and make them effective in different ways, you know you, you start to use different skills and push your practice a little bit further so mm-hmm. it's quite exciting in that way I think yeah I, I mean I love responding to site specific spaces mm-hmm. because they ask me to tell the story in a slightly different way uh, you know I'm very keen on responding to the space like we said earlier the mid-century setting it, it, it was to do with really wanting to make sure the story sat in that world and it looked like it was meant to be in that world I didn't want it to be a stage a play that happened to be in a bookshop I wanted it to to absolutely respond to the the richness of that environment and then it asks new questions about how you move the actors around the space you know when you're in a stage there's lots of givens that that work and there's rules that we know about but then when you're in a site specific space every space asks new things of of how you literally physically place the actors in in the in the playing area yeah sorry was was there someone i was giving sorry was i looking the wrong way I'm sorry, but I've 
and obviously Peter Cushing and uh, Christopher Lee springs to mind. But uh, there was a big theme then of, of Dracula being the baddie mm-hmm. and the, the vampires being baddies. Peter Cushing along with his crucifix and the Christian remedy mm-hmm. was the good thing. And that's why I don't know if anything like that was actually in the book originally or if it comes up in your Yeah, sort of good and evil, the huge concepts of good and evil. I mean, there's definitely religious concerns in the book, definitely, and sort of old ideas about how the world should be governed, which is essentially a religious principle, um, and how the new world should be governed with the movement of industry and technology and science and that kind of thing. So I I do think that's in some ways quite loyal, but I do think adaptations like to really go for that crucifix and the uh, religion aspect perhaps more heavily than it is in the original text a little I think a little bit more heavily I mean the crucifix is obviously important because it's the uh, it's the way that you get rid of the vampire yeah I think and I think that's why it always comes yeah. through because it yeah. is the most effective way to fight a vampire so it kind of has to be in all adaptations but yeah it's certainly in the original um, mm. so I'd say they would be quite true to it and there was uh, I think Stoker was uh, Stoke had a very clear sense within his writing of you know good and evil, uh, Christian and non-Christian, um, and different religions too. Because yeah. of course, Dracula is uh, not from the same place, no. so there is the fear of the foreigner and the fear of uh, other worlds coming in and infecting and changing. Um, England and England's progress and that kind of thing. Which is a whole other adaptation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a moment in in our version where uh, Jonathan, on his on his way to Castle Dracula, is given a crucifix by a kind of lady in an inn, yeah. and it, it's a moment for him of his kind of rationalism versus superstition. So he sort of defends and says, no, well, that might be true in, in your country, but we don't have such traditions. And he takes it anyway, and it ends up being a comfort to him. So it's it's the moment where he stops being the kind of rational lawyer who's, you know, travelling across Europe. From and actually, world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's, who's the one who has all the answers. And he yeah. sort of has to give in to there might be something else going on here and that he can't understand, he can't rationalise everything. Mm. Um, I don't know what Mina would have done faced with that lady. I feel like Mina is, in 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 our version, is potentially more rational than Jonathan. Whether she would have, not, would I have think she is in the it. book too. Yeah. I think yeah. she is more rational than Jonathan in the book. Jonathan's a bit crazy in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah. he's struggling with the effects of having met mm. Dracula throughout the novel, and, yeah. and Mina's incredibly kind of organised and meticulous. And I've said this before, but I've always loved the kind of funny references to how she wants to use her brain she's like well when I'm getting married I know I'm going to learn shorthand to to help Jonathan and she also memorizes all the train timetables all the trains to London and she's very proud of this that's an incredible brain that's that's a woman that needs to use her brain more (laughs) like for better things and she's always looking for evidence isn't she so she's going through all of Lucy's papers trying to piece together what's happened she's doing the kind of cognitive work yes she is rather than looking at but all of the sort of spooky coincidences, really, that have yeah. happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Have, have you found um, any uh, indications why he placed uh, um, Dracula in Transylvania? Why he placed him in Transylvania? Yeah. The, the more, I, I think you know more about this than I do, actually. Did you travel, actually, over there? Oh, I don't know, but there I know there are local stories oh, okay. in that part of the world about vampires, well, so he may have come a, across those. 
and that's my assumption. I felt like we had a whole discussion about it that we seem to have lost. <laughs> really? um, <laughs> there is an answer to that. And there is, um, and I the, feel like oh, I what's know his name? Vlad the Impaler or whatever. Who, yes. So there is that yeah, character. Yeah. So there's kind of mythology around vampires in that part of the world. There's a really fascinating documentary, actually, on um, that you told me about on BBC iPlayer. It's the Tuesday documentary, and it covers this in it. And it's very interesting. And they talk about Transylvanian religion and principle and um, some of the influences of that and why it, why it happened. But I can't remember what it is. Was that the 1970s yes, documentary? Yes, it, it, but, but it was really interesting. It's, it's still so on BBC iPlayer. It's the Tuesday documentary. It's really good. Really good. And that kind of love of horror as well, which influenced that kind of horror horror film idea, and you were talking about Hammer Horror Films, influenced the directorial style as well. Um, I'm just aware that we need to start wrapping this up. So any more questions from the floor? Uh, we condensed it to two hours. Uh, if, you've been, if you had all the luxury, that's fine. <laughs> uh, Well, I, I, it depends on what the form was. I, I mean, if it's for the stage, you don't really want it to run. I think you, I think I'd be more tempted to do just a different adaptation rather than make one run longer because I think you want it to be a manageable time frame. I think there's a, you know, two hours is a is a good amount of time. But if, but there are things that I would like to explore about it. Like I am really interested in the old and the new worlds in the Victorian period. And the influence of, you know, the, the foreign infection I find really interesting. And I think it's very uh, particularly pertinent to, to today's politics and what's going on. So I think I'd be more likely to do something different rather than make something longer, in a sense, I think. Yeah, I'd echo that. And like you say, the theme of the real fear of the travelling to the East that's within the, uh, the novel, I think you could do something very pertinent <laughs> with that adaptation to today's politics, like look at what that means. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it would be a different angle rather than a longer version, because I, I, I think... Well, like you were saying earlier, it's what you take out is actually what's interesting because that is part yeah. of what you're saying yeah i feel like there is there's the potential for a sequel though isn't there because the moment that which you leave them you sort of you want to know well what happens next now that jonathan and mina have given in to this you know what's what happens next really in in whitby and in the uk and in their relationship and like generally like we you know where's this going um yeah okay any more questions Right, well, we are doing the show um, every day until April the 14th. I should say every day except Sunday. So no Sunday show, every other day. Till April the 14th in Blackwell's Bookshop, which is just over the road. 7.30 shows. Uh, we've got lots of flyers with us today which give you £2 off tickets. So if anybody wants to take one of those, <laughs> there's a code to get £2 off your tickets. Um, we hope to see you there. Thank you very much, Thank guys. listening to the creation theater podcast you can find more episodes and all the latest creation news at creationtheatre.co.uk.